0: Let's pray together. Father, we do gather in this place together this morning to praise you, Father, to praise your Son, to praise your Spirit, and we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for your Word as we are about to open it. God, we ask that your Spirit would teach us, that our voices, together as one, would praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, Pastor Mark already beat me to the punch and said that he went to bed before midnight last night just by a show of hands. How many of you actually stayed up until midnight last night? Okay. All right. That's a significant number. How many of you by a show of hands have stopped doing that and just go to bed when the body says go to bed? (laughs) Excellent. With the new year though, we go, yeah, it's new. What's going to be new this year? We've seen God's faithfulness to us this past year. And with a new year, typically people speak of resolutions. Like what am I going to resolve to do differently this year? And people come up with all kinds of ideas. Some that are very good ideas. Like, I'm going to resolve this year to steward my finances better. I'm actually going to create a budget. That's a good thing. Or I'm actually going to resolve this year to steward my health better. That's a good thing. And we can go on and on down the list. And maybe you have some things that you are resolved in 2023 that you're going to do this year, including... I put it in here somewhere, we do have a reading plan that Pastor Mark told us about. So maybe you're resolved to read through the Bible this year with the church. That's a good thing as well. But all these things should point us to one greater pursuit. And one thing that we should be more resolved to do this year, and that is to know God more. And yes, obviously, reading his word aids us with that. But reading his word is not just so that we would gain intellect and knowledge, but that we would know him personally, that we would know him passionately, that it would be a purposeful pursuit of knowing God. I want to read some quotes from some others about knowing God. Sinclair Ferguson said this, he said, we tend to be a generation of Christians who major on minor matters, but do not seem to possess the true measure of the gospel in the knowledge of God. We do not really know God. At best, we know about him, End quote. That is not what I'm talking about for this new year, that we would know about him more, but that we would truly know him. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, quote, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you, end quote. So to know God, to pursue God, is to see him in his greatness and in comparison how small we are and to know God humbles us martin lloyd jones says this he says our supreme need our only need is to know God the living God and the power of his might we need nothing else end quote to know God how many of us had that on our list this year? That is our pursuit to know God. to know Him more. Lastly, I have a quote from J. I. Packer this morning. J.I. Packer said, quote, "What were we made for? To know God? What aim should we have in life to know God? What is the eternal life that Jesus gives to know God? What is the best thing in life to know God?" What in humans gives God most pleasure, knowledge of himself, end quote, to know God. And so some of you might be thinking, I I get it. We're to know God. Jesus also spoke of this. Pastor Mark mentioned this this morning from the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 in verse three. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That we would know God. I wanna stop, I know we're in church and many of us know these things, but have we stopped and considered that knowing God is the greatest privilege? Knowing God. To, to truly know God is to have fellowship with God. And to have fellowship with God is the greatest joy that one can experience. And to have our joy complete in God is to bring Him the most glory. So as you see on the screen this morning, the sermon is exactly what we're speaking of. It's knowing God. This morning we'll be starting a new book, the first uh, letter First John. We'll be looking at the opening four verses, which is the prologue of First John. And if you have a Bible, this, a Bible this morning, if you'd open up to First John chapter one, when you arrive there to that text in First John, if you could rise to your feet to honor the public reading of God's word. First John, chapter one, beginning in verse one. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So reads God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Please be seated. As we open up this new book, this first letter of John, it's important before we even dig into this prologue this morning... That we have some background to this letter. As we just read, the first and most obvious note about this letter is that it lacks a salutation, any type of personal reference in its opening. And in that manner, it is unlike the rest of the letters in the New Testament, with the exception of Hebrews that also does the same thing. And though the author is not named 1 John was recognized by the early early church fathers as being written by the Apostle John. It's also noteworthy, as we'll look at it this morning, the the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, that it shares both grammatical as well as stylistic familiarity with this letter, giving us great confidence that the author of the gospel of John is the author of this letter of 1 John. We know that this author... The Apostle John also penned Second uh, John, Third John, Revelation, as well as what I spoke of earlier, the Gospel of John. So, who was John? We know, as we read through the Gospels, we're introduced to John and his brother James. We know that they were fishermen, along with their father Zebedee. Uh, those two brothers, when called by Christ, if you recall, immediately gave up their occupation. And left and followed Jesus. We know that John was one of the inner three, along with his brother James and the Apostle Peter, that got to go with Jesus and see certain events with Jesus. One being Christ's transfiguration, another, they got to go in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and pray alongside him. So the author we know is John, but not only knowing the author, it's important that we know what was going on in the culture at this time. If we jump into 1 John, even in this prologue, and just read through it without understanding the culture of the time, we miss what was really being argued in this letter. And so we need to understand that in ancient Greece, mystic notions were the norm. One of those originated in the days of Pythagoras and Plato, and it was known as Soma Sima which literally means the body is a tomb. The worldview of the day was that only the spirit was pure. And anything that had material, including the human body, was corrupted and impure. And you need to keep that in mind as we go through this letter together. What the thinking was of the day, that only the spiritual part of man, the soul, was what was good, and that that spiritual part needed to escape the physical, needed to escape from the body. That same ancient belief of the Greeks became something that was in the early church, affecting the early church. It became known as Gnosticism during the first two centuries. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, and the basic teaching of Gnosticism was like the ancient Greek, belief. It was that physical matter was entirely evil, and the spirit was entirely good. Again, keep that in mind as we go looking at this book. Spirit is good. The physical, including the body, is evil. That thought came at the church in a belief that was an erroneous belief and attacked the person of Jesus Christ. There was an erroneous belief that led to an erroneous conclusion that led to an erroneous practice. And that erroneous belief is that a person's body, which is physical matter, is evil. And that erroneous belief led to the erroneous conclusion that Jesus Christ could not have had a physical body because the body would be evil. You following the connection? And from that erroneous conclusion came an erroneous practice. And that practice was, since physical matter was considered evil, disobedience to God was not viewed as a major issue. Because they said it happened in the body and the body's evil, so it's no big deal, because only the spirit is good. Some Gnostics believed that sins committed in the physical body didn't matter at all, and so they would live in all kinds of wickedness. Some even denied that sin existed, and keep that in mind because in the same letter, John is going to address sin that if you say you do not have sin, you make God a liar. Because that was in the mindset of this false teaching that was being proposed to the believers. They taught that salvation comes not through faith in Jesus Christ, but by special knowledge, something not openly revealed to all people. Only those who had an understanding of this teaching of Gnosticism could achieve the so-called higher knowledge that exceeded even the scriptures. So I want you to keep all that background in mind as we look into 1 John and as we study through the entire letter. I know many of you have read through 1 John on many times, and as you read through it, you probably picked up on one of John's literary uh, styles is to show contrast between things. Over and over again, he gives contrast in this letter. He shows a contrast between light and darkness. He shows a contrast between truth and falsehood. He shows contrast between love and hatred. He shows contrast between loving the world and loving God. He shows a contrast between children of God and children of the devil. He shows contrast between righteousness and sin. He shows a contrast between the spirit of God and the spirit of the Antichrist. And lastly, he also shows a contrast between life and death. That's part of his writing style, to show a contrast, to help us understand. It's either this or it's that. But looking at all of the contrasts and putting them together, the overarching theme of the contrast is showing us this is how a believer lives, And this is how an unbeliever lives. That was the big contrast that he wrote about. And so not only did he write of contrast, but John, being a great writer, would always write the purpose for his writing. In his gospel, if you flip back over, hold your place there in 1 John. But I want to show you at the end of the gospel of John, if you had turned to John chapter 20, John wrote the purpose of him writing that gospel. In John chapter 20... In verse 31, we see John write the purpose for the gospel that he wrote. He writes in John 20, verse 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What was the purpose of writing the gospel? He was evangelistic. It was that you might know him. It's that you might know Christ, that you might know the Savior of the world, that you might be saved. That was the purpose of writing the gospel. We'll flip back to 1 John and we'll ask ourselves, well, what's the purpose of writing 1 John? Well, he lists four different times in this letter of why he is writing, but they all lead to the final time that he points out in chapter 5. I want to go through them with you real quick this morning, starting in chapter 1 of 1 John, Look at verse 4. He says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our joy may be complete. Well, as we'll look at this morning, that joy is in knowing God. It's in having fellowship with God. It's in being saved from our sins. Flip over to 1 John chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. Beginning of verse 1, he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. What we'll see He goes to this argument that those who live in Christ, their pursuit is no longer a life of sin. It is a life of righteousness. And why is it not a life of sin? Because their joy is in the Lord. Look at verse 26 of chapter 2. Again, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So he's saying, there is truth of who Jesus is and salvation through Jesus, and yet there are those who are trying to deceive you. Church, I need you to understand this. Do not for a second say, well, this was like 2,000 years ago. These things don't happen today. Deception continues on. And deception continues to try to creep itself into the church And that's why you are encouraged to be like the Bereans, to search the scriptures. If you come here on Sunday to listen to a sermon, make sure you have a Bible in your lap. Follow along, read the context before and after of what's being spoken to you. Test what is being said to the scriptures. Because Jesus warned that there'll be those who will creep into the church. They'll rise up from among you looking to deceive you. So always turn to your Bible. Test these things. Turn to chapter 5 of verse John. Everything that he has said so far for his purpose leads up to this. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. His gospel was evangelistic, that you would come to Christ, that you would have eternal life in Christ. And this letter is assurance of salvation. It's that you know that you have eternal life. I want you to take note of 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Lord, we'll get there as we study through this letter. But it is an important verse because as you go out and you begin to share your faith with others, some will tell you you cannot know for sure that you are saved. If you have a loved one who's a Catholic and you share with them, that they can have assurance and know that they know that they know that they have eternal life, they'll say, no, you can't. You gotta hope you've done enough good. You got a friend or a family member who's a Mormon, they'll say the same thing. That we're hoping that we've done enough good guess what we could never have done enough good our salvation is based upon the finished work of jesus christ and that's why there is assurance not based upon what we have done but based upon what he has done and yet through this letter of first john in order to have assurance john's going to lay out three different tests for us the first one is going to be a doctrinal test That we know the Jesus of the Bible, that we have not created our own Jesus or a Jesus in our own image, but that we know who Christ is. He's also going to go through a moral test saying, if we know this Jesus and we've been saved by this Jesus, then there'll be transformation in us that we will obey this Jesus. And lastly, he'll go through a love test. That just as we have been loved, we too are to love one another. And that is a test that we are genuinely God's children. And so he's going to take us through these tests. And Lord willing, as we get through this study of 1 John together, we will address each of these. This morning, we see the doctrinal one of who Jesus is. And so let's look back to the prologue, the first four verses this morning. Turn back to 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to read through it again this morning. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Here we have in these opening four verses the prologue of John's letter. And John is very intentional. And if you take all the background I just gave you about the beliefs of the day and what was creeping into the church, you see John was very intentional in this opening prologue to go after the false teaching that was attacking the church. He begins with these words that which was from the beginning. Now, typically, I'm sure as we've read through this before, immediately for those of us that are familiar with our Bibles, our minds immediately go back to his gospel. In the very beginning of John's gospel, he opens up that gospel by saying in 1 John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then he goes on a few verses later in verse 14 of that gospel and says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as the only son of the father full of grace and truth why do i mention all that because it is true what what john is pointing out the fact that jesus was and always will be that he is the pre-existent one that he's always been part of the godhead He was before the beginning, he was in the beginning, he was from the beginning, he's always been. As John puts it in this prologue, he says, he is the eternal life, which was with the Father. You know, Jesus boldly proclaimed the same thing about himself. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He was indicating he was the God of Exodus 3, 14 that he is the one who has always existed. And it is this Jesus, the second person of the triune God, whose life was made manifest. Literally, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And so though it is helpful to correlate the opening of John's letter, or 1 John, with the gospel of John, John also is deliberately pointing out in his opening here that this is not something new. There was not some new revelation or higher knowledge that the word of life was from the beginning. John likes this term in in this letter of from the beginning. In all of his writings, he uses this phrase 10 times. Eight of those times are in this letter. He's proven a point that there's nothing new to be careful of what you hear. I heard the latest thing. It's all been told about Jesus. It's all been recorded for us. We're to test all things to the word. So John repeats over and over and over again that truth about Christ and about the gospel of salvation, that it was clearly known and it was clearly uh, declared right before these false teachers had began spreading these lies, that there was truth in Christ. He's saying, look, don't listen to what these guys are saying. Don't listen about some special revelation, some new thing. He said, we've known this from the beginning. Stay steadfast on what you already know. Look again at those opening four verses, and you'll see some repetition. As a good Bible student, you know when you see repetition, you should... Be alert to that. There's a reason why. There would be repetition. And what do we see repeated over and over again? We see the word, we've seen him. Three times, John says, I've seen. If we included looked upon, that would make four times. He's making a point that we've seen him, but he also said we've heard him. Twice he mentions that. He also mentions manifest, that he was manifested. He, he's become publicly revealed. He's been made visible. Twice he mentions that in just this short passage. And so what's his point by saying he's been, we've seen him, we've heard him. He, he's been manifested. And he's repeating himself. What's his point? He's saying, I'm an eyewitness that Jesus came and took on flesh And as an eyewitness, John can legally testify to the facts about Christ. He has seen him. He has heard him. He has touched him. Jesus was not, as these false teachers were promoting, some type of ghost or some phantom. Jesus was in the flesh. And John is testifying to that. That this Jesus was fully man and fully God. Jesus speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 13 in verses 16 and 17. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is standing before them in the flesh. All of the Old Testament that pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah, there he was. They've seen him. They've heard him. They've touched him. And this idea of the physical body of Jesus, even if we think of when the disciples were on the boat and the waves are coming and all of a sudden Jesus is walking on water and they look out. You remember this in Matthew chapter 14? What happens when they see Jesus. The Bible says they freak out. And what do they think they saw? Matthew records they think they saw a ghost. But Peter says, if that is you, Lord, bid me to come to you. So Jesus says, come. So Peter gets out of the boat, which we could do a whole sermon on just that idea. And he goes to Jesus and seeing the waves and the wind and everything, He gets afraid and it says he begins to sink. And as he begins to sink, he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And do you know what Jesus did? Jesus didn't say, all right, arise. And and, and Peter could have come back up. It says Jesus reached out his hand. Physically, the hand of Christ pulled up Peter. Peter knows as well that Jesus was in the flesh. Over and over, we see these things throughout the Gospels that Jesus surely was in the flesh. You say, why is that a big deal? Because of the false teaching that was attacking the church at this time that he was only a spirit. You know, even after Jesus was raised from the dead, he continued to prove to others that he was still in the flesh. In Luke chapter 24, verse 39, after he has risen he said see my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have how direct is that how fitting is that and again we read in in John's gospel and I won't read the whole thing but I'll remind you of it in John chapter 20 Do you remember Jesus appears to the disciples but there's one who is not there remember Thomas? Surely you have a nickname for him, right? Doubting Thomas? Because they say the Lord has appeared to us. And he goes, Phew. well, listen, actually he says this. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and the place my feet fi- and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I mean, that was fairly understandable, right? No one had seen anything like this before. And graciously, eight days later, Jesus appears to Thomas. You can imagine Thomas was scared. So Jesus says, peace be with you. Not here to harm you. And then Jesus says to him, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas responded, my Lord and my God, the physical body of Christ. And I've got other passages, you could read it later, but 1 Corinthians 15, three through nine, Jesus appears to over 500 people in his physical body after he rises from the dead. And so to try to claim that Jesus did not have a physical body was an absolute lie. And John was steadfast. He was adamant about testifying to the truth that Jesus was in the flesh. And say, well, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. John had seen him. He had heard him. He had touched him. John knew the truth that Jesus Who was fully God, that he came to earth to be born of a virgin and clothed in human flesh, being fully God and fully man. He would forevermore be the God man. What did he come to do as we've preached through this Advent season? We know that he came to save sinners. Jesus in flesh. That as their perfect representative, he would live a perfect sinless life that they could not live and die as their perfect substitute, satisfying the wrath of God that was against them. It, it, it's only Jesus. It's only the God-man, fully God and fully human who could accomplish this. This is what John is arguing for in this opening of this letter. We cannot find or make up a different Jesus. Jesus. It has to be the true Jesus of the Scriptures, the one who has come to save sinners. And this is the good news that they were proclaiming, that Christ came and took on flesh so that he could go to a cross and die in place of his people. Twice in this prologue, John writes that they proclaimed this news, the truth about Jesus The truth about what they have experienced, that Christ is the Savior of the world, that he came and took on flesh to save his people from their sins. What happens when God graciously opens your eyes and your heart to the truth about his son, Jesus? What happens when he gifts you with repentance and faith? When transformation comes into your life, you cannot help but tell others about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can try to hold it back, but when you truly know God, it's coming out. Others around you will know, and that is what John is declaring in the opening of this prologue, is that we proclaim this over and over again. He says we are proclaiming this truth, we know it to be certain. John speaks of fellowship in this opening, in this prologue. In the first chapter of John alone, he uses this word fellowship four times. It comes from the Greek word koinonia. It speaks of sharing in common something that is significant and important. And it's only by having fellowship with God that you truly know him. As we speak of knowing God, it's to have fellowship with God is to have union with him. John Stott describes it this way. He said, quote, fellowship is a specifically Christian word and denotes that common participation in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ and the indwelling spirit, which is the spiritual birthright of all believers. It is our common possession of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which makes us one. Fellowship with God, union with him. Pastor Mark read us the opening of the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. That's where, again, Jesus was speaking of this. Again, I read it earlier in verse three, and this is eternal life, John 17, three, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then later in that prayer, as Jesus prays on our behalf, he prays to the Father in John 17, verses 21 and 22. And he prays this, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Our Lord Jesus prayed for this fellowship, this union with him and the Father, and this union that we would have with one another, That all believers would be one. You know, Paul describes it as a body. That we are individual members that make up one body. And that Jesus is the head of that body. What do you think about that? As we gather together on the Lord's day, this is a gift of God. That he would take his people and bring them together that they might encourage one another, that they might worship him with one voice together, that they might stir up love and good works in one another. The gift that he has brought us in union one with another, that upon repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that we have fellowship with God the Father, with his son Jesus, and with one another. John's prologue goes on, to give him one of those reasons why he has written the letter. Verse 4, he states this. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's much discussion on this word that he uses, our joy. And though it is not perfectly clear when he speaks of our joy, he's most likely speaking collectively of all believers, including himself, that our joy may be complete. So my question this morning is, how is our joy Made complete. It's by knowing God. By knowing him. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. By knowing Christ as Lord and Savior. Joy is knowing this, that if God is for you, who could be against you? Joy is knowing this, that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. Joy is knowing that God loved you so much that he would send his son to die in your place. Joy is knowing that salvation is secure, and it's based entirely on Christ's finished work. It's based on what he has done, not our performance. But John puts this all together, and he says, Bottom line, Bottom line, this is what joy is. Joy is having fellowship with God. It is knowing God. David spoke of this in Psalm 16, verse 11. David wrote, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy. Where is it? In the presence of God. Are you a believer here this morning? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you repented of sin? Have you tasted the fullness of joy? Because one of the arguments that John will also pen this letter is how there is a battleground, and in that battleground, there are things vying for our attention. There are things of this world that are vying for our attention that somehow we think we're going to find joy and pleasure and satisfaction in them. But joy, true joy, is only found in knowing God. Nothing else compares to it. John Calvin speaks about this joy. He says this, quote, By full joy, he expresses more clearly the complete and perfect happiness with which we obtain through the gospel at the same time, he reminds the faithful where they ought to fix all their affections. True is that saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whosoever then really perceives what fellowship with God is, will be satisfied with it alone, and will no more burn with desires for other things, end quote. So we must ask ourselves this morning, have I tasted of this joy? Because if I have, it will affect the way that I pursue everything else. It will also affect my pursuit of knowing God more. Because if I have tasted this joy, I want to know more of it. And so I pursue to know him more. There is no greater joy. There's no fuller joy, no better joy than the joy experienced by having fellowship with God. So as we go through this prologue this morning, and I'm going to tell you there's five takeaways, they are just brief. Don't worry. Like wait, we're going to go into five points now? <laughs> five takeaways that I see looking through here. The first takeaway of looking at just this prologue is that you must know the biblical Jesus. You must know the biblical Jesus that he is fully man and fully God, that he is the God-man, the one who has always existed with God, who came and took on flesh, the one who would live a perfect life in our place and die in our place. Here's the warning of knowing the biblical Jesus. You cannot create your own Jesus nor can you succumb to those around you who would create their own Jesus and say, no, no, this is who he is. You must hold fast to the Christ who has been revealed to us through his holy word. Do not be persuaded any other way. You must know the biblical Jesus. Second thing that goes hand in hand with that that I see from this text this morning Is you must not be deceived by popular spiritual pursuits. There are things going on all around us. And I know some of you spend much time on social media and YouTube. Do not listen to what you're learning there, but listen to God in His Word. This is where truth lies. But when we spend more time on YouTube and on social media, we begin to shift from this truth and get caught up on the latest. And trust me, it's one thing after another a continual attack on who Christ is. Stick to the Jesus of the Bible. Thirdly, we see in this text that when you truly know Jesus, you can't help but to testify and to proclaim him to everyone around you. That's almost a litmus test of our own faith. If we declare that we know him, do we see the evidence that I must tell others? Say, well, Pastor, you're coming at me kind of hard. Like I'm not an extrovert. I don't like talking to others. I'm an introvert. Would you pray if you are timid for boldness to tell others about Christ. If you believe the truth about Christ, that he came to save sinners because there was eternal damnation for their sins, and you believe that, and you look at family and friends and neighbors around you who are destined for that, that you look at them and go, they don't know the truth about Christ. If you truly believe what you say about Christ, and you've truly experienced knowing him, having fellowship with them, then surely you would beg God, give me boldness to tell them of the truth. Fourthly from this text is that every genuine believer has fellowship with God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and with every other believer. Fellowship, union, Which means, as we've taught through looking at Advent preaching, I don't have to shrink back if Christ appears. That I'm okay and all is well with my soul. And I can enjoy God. And I can enjoy His presence in my life. Every true believer has fellowship with Him. And what comes from that, lastly, it's that true joy. True joy can only be experienced by knowing the triune God. And that true joy can never be taken away. So we'll close with a few questions this morning. Do you know God? Not do you know enough about Him to be dangerous in your knowledge, but do you know Him? Do you have fellowship with Him? Do you have fellowship with the Father and the Son? Is the joy that we have spoken of this morning the joy that you possess? That Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully man, that he came to save sinners and to reconcile them back to God, that they might have fellowship with him. Do you enjoy that? Is that truly yours? That you know him. You have fellowship with him. That you know him as Lord and you know him as Savior. Savior. If you don't know him as Lord and Savior, but maybe you know about him, and maybe you can put down a bunch of answers on a a quiz about Jesus, but you don't know of this fellowship I'm speaking of. You don't know this fellowship that John's writing about. You don't never experience the joy that he's writing about. Then Jesus would bid you to come to him, to right now repent, turn from your ways, turn from sin, and turn to Christ to receive him as Lord and Savior. There is no magic formula. It is humbling yourself before a holy God, knowing that you are in need of a Savior. And that when you come to Him, then you'll understand what we have spoken of this morning. That there is joy in knowing God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your word that we can cling to. Father, we thank you for your word that we can test all things to. Father, as we look this morning and we see the Apostle John refuting error and heresy that was entering the church, Father, we thank you that you have given us your holy word that we can test all things, that we can be like Bereans and Make sure these things are such. Father, we also see in this text this morning the work of your son and what he has accomplished on behalf of all those who would believe in him. Father, that he would restore, that he would reconcile us back to you and that in that union that we would have fellowship with you and that there would be no greater joy that we could ever experience than being in true fellowship with our maker. Father, I pray for those, maybe they're here every single week and hear the gospel call go out and they think, well, maybe one day I would do that. Or they think, well, I think I'm okay. I think I have the answers. That perhaps this morning through the power of your spirit, you would show them that they don't have this fellowship, that they don't know this joy, and yet it can be theirs in Christ Jesus this morning. We pray that you would draw them in repentance and faith this morning, and that you would receive all honor and glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.